but I'm glad to hear Tony Blair coming out in favor of the Russian invasion of Afghanistan. It's good to hear him say that. If you look back at the highly credible reports of the last years of the Russian invasion, uh, there were schools, there was development, uh, women were liberated in Kabul, they could wear any clothes they wanted, they could go to the university. Hello, my name is Donald. I'm filling in for Pietrus, who's currently trying to dodge a drone strike in Afghanistan. This is Worldview. We explore everyone's perspectives on all things that can broaden our worldview. Today, we're talking to Professor Noam Chomsky. The professor is an American linguist, philosopher, cognitive scientist, historian, social critic, and political activist. He is the author of more than 150 books on topics such as linguistics, war, politics, and mass media. Professor, good evening from my side, good morning to your side. Professor, you are considered an expert on American politics, especially on US foreign policy. I mean, I've I watched videos of you debating William Buckley. I think it goes all the way back to the 1960s, 1970s. So I, I would be very interested, and a lot of people would be very interested to hear your opinion on the current debacle in Afghanistan. Uh, was the American occupation of, of Afghanistan doomed to fail? No, not really. First of all, I should say the, there was absolutely zero justification for the invasion. None. There was no charge against the Taliban. Uh, the U.S. at the time didn't even know whether Osama bin Laden was responsible. The anti-Taliban Afghan resistance, which was strong, was bitterly opposed to the invasion. Uh, its leading figure, Abdul Haq, backed by many others, uh, said that the invasion is just taking place because the United States wants to show its muscle and intimidate everyone. Uh, it will kill many Afghans and it will undermine their efforts to overthrow the Taliban from within. I was backed up by about a thousand tribal leaders by the main women's group in Afghanistan, but nobody pays attention to Afghans. Uh, Donald Rumsfeld and President Bush himself gave approximately the same reason for invading. Uh, the Taliban offered to, uh, they had no charge against the Taliban before 9-11. In fact, they were on pretty good terms with them. 9-11 uh, took place, Rumsfeld immediately recognized that this is an opportunity to really go big, as he said. They didn't care that much about Afghanistan. They had a bigger game to go after Iraq and then the rest of the region. Uh, the Taliban offered to extradite bin Laden. We don't know if the offers were serious because the US just rejected them. The Taliban then offered to totally surrender, totally, which would mean bin Laden would be loose. U.S. response was, we don't negotiate surrenders, Rumsfeld. Uh, 
Bush approximately the same. Nevertheless, despite this, in the early years of the occupation, it could have succeeded. Uh, the Taliban basically had retreated to their villages. The rural population, overwhelming majority, basically just wanted peace. Mm. Uh, if the United States could have brought peace, they were hoping maybe for some sort of development aid could have worked. But instead, uh, the U.S. launched a violent, brutal invasion, attacks uh, by U.S. special forces on night attacks, uh, invading apart apartments, uh, terrorizing people, uh, 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 bombing attacks that killed civilians. Uh, pretty soon they had, in fact, there's a very good study of this by Anand Gopal, one of the few journalists who was on the ground the whole time, wrote an excellent book in which he described what was happening. Uh, the, it's a tribal society. Uh, the invasion, American invasion, led to lots of local warlords and being established. Uh, some of them wanted to uh, eliminate their enemies. So what they would do is inform the American forces that the enemy was cooperating with the Taliban and the U.S. would send massive forces in, smash everything up, kill a lot of people, uh, recruit uh, for the Taliban, which is, of course, what happens. You break into a house at 2 a.m., smash, smash the place up. Mm. kill somebody, father will join the Taliban, okay? So there was an opportunity. It was squandered. And it just turned into a, basically a war of occupation. Uh, the, uh, it was pretty obvious that the whole thing was going to collapse right away. Actually, I don't say that in retrospect. I was giving interviews about it early this year. What happened was that Trump in uh, February 2020, simply gave away the store. He, he just wanted to get out. He told the Taliban, do whatever you like, uh, and uh, we're going to leave. Uh, just the only condition is don't attack American forces. Okay. Otherwise, you can do whatever you like. Now, this was, of course, demoralizing for the Afghan army and the government, such as it was, mostly a morass of corruption with very little support. Uh, the uh, as soon as Biden somewhat extended the withdrawal, it was supposed to be May. May uh, mm. Biden extended it a couple of months, but didn't really change much. As soon as American forces started to withdraw, the Afghan army, which was Half of it probably was only on paper in the first place, uh, just dissolved. The uh, uh, government fled, the uh, whole thing was over. Uh, there were lots of precipitous withdrawal. The, there never should have been an invasion. The, uh, the mode of the occupation was shocking. I didn't even mention the torture chambers all over, which bitterly alienated 
Afghans, of course. So the occupation was a disaster. Still, there should not have been a precipitous withdrawal. A little, uh, also the withdrawal was timed at exactly the wrong time. Under uh, Trump, it would have been at the beginning of the fighting season. If anything, it should have been at the end of the fighting season, giving people a, some kind of a chance to make accommodations, maybe local accommodations, other arrangements mm. among Afghans. But nobody cared about the Afghans. We just do what's in it for us. In fact, the, I mean, the, some of the, uh, the commentary on this was really astonishing. So, for example, it's pretty obvious to any journalist that the most important interview on the uh, anniversary of the invasion, also the small follow-up exercise in Iraq, most important interview would be with the perpetrator, uh, the man who proudly called himself the decider, George W. Bush. Hmm. Well, I searched. There was actually an interview with him in the Washington Post in the style section. They had an interview timed with the withdrawal, which is about this lovable, goofy grandpa playing with his kids, uh, looking at the portraits he painted of great people he met, really nice guy. There was a couple of words about some of his exploits, but it was about how he was much better than Trump because at least he didn't call his opponents bad names. Okay. Killed a couple million people, endless number of refugees, destroyed two countries, uh, and had a, initiated a regime of terror, you know, uh, uh, spread, uh, initiated ethnic conflicts that disrupt tearing the whole region apart, but he didn't call his enemies bad names. Okay, so nice guy. Let's go back to goofy old grandpa. That was not untypical of the commentary. It's all about us. Many articles about the cost to us, maybe $8 trillion, according to the latest estimates. Wow. But notice that that's not really a cost to us. Most of that money comes back to the United States. Military contractors, to defense industry, to uh, payment for soldiers, veterans benefits. Small amount of it went to the Afghans, and most of that to corrupt officials. Uh, so the eight trillion dollars is a little bit misleading. The, uh, but that's the nature of the commentary. Afghans, who cares? You know. And and many are now comparing um, Kabul with Saigon. Um, the withdrawal from Saigon with the withdrawal of Kabul. As someone was alive. During, and, and I believe you protested the Vietnam War. Which withdrawal do you think was worse? The, the Vietnam, the, the, the Saigon withdrawal or the Kabul withdrawal? Well, first of all, the withdrawals themselves were the right thing to do. There should never, Vietnam was much worse than Afghanistan. 
that's the worst crime since the Second World War. Uh, could go through the history, but it was a hideous atrocity. Uh, the uh, in Vietnam, the U.S. did leave a uh, function, more or less functioning government, mil huge military force, very well armed, but uh, and it actually held out for a couple of years. Uh, but uh, it's a very different situation. But what happened in Vietnam was the U.S. had essentially wiped out the Southern resistance, and all that was left was. North Vietnamese. So it ended up with a war between the North Vietnamese and uh, the Saigon army that the US had established. Nothing like that in Afghanistan. Mm. But uh, the real crime in Vietnam was wiping out the South. The attack on the North was bad enough, but it was nothing like the attack on South Vietnam. In fact, by Earlier, by late 1966, the uh, leading uh, specialist on Vietnam, the most respected of them, Bernard Fall, Vietnamese expert, military historian, about the only expert recognized by the Pentagon as civilian one, as serious. He, um, in 1966, he wrote that he doubted that Vietnam could survive as a cultural and historic entity under the worst, most severe attack that had ever been launched against a country that size. War went on for almost a decade after that. So withdrawal. there should never have been an intervention it started with Truman built up under Eisenhower, escalated very sharply under Kennedy uh, by then, it was all devastating. So I don't really think there's much of a comparison. Actually, a closer comparison would be uh, what happened to the Iraqi army when a huge army, a couple hundred thousand people heavily armed, as soon as uh, a few hundred jihadis came racing towards them, waving rifles and pickup trucks, they disappeared. Officers ran away, soldiers followed. Uh, Iraq was saved from conquest by ISIS only by the Iranian-backed Shiite militias, which held the ISIS forces back before they conquered Baghdad with help from the US bombing. But uh, that that's sort of similar. I mean, you can't an army isn't going to fight for an occupying force. Mm. But um, if, I, if I can bring it back to Afghanistan, I recently saw an interview with Tony Blair, the former prime minister of the UK, who was obviously is a chief proponent of the invasion of Afghanistan. And he says that the, the GDP of the country had tripled under US uh, British occupation. And that he believes, along with um, the advancements in education, um, he says that there are many more people enrolled in education today than there were 20 years ago. He uses that as a justification for that occupation. Do you believe the, the, the fact that the GDP tripled and that the education has improved, that, is any, that, they, that that is a justification for that invasion? 
first of all, the GDP has increased, but where's the money gone to? Not to the population. But I'm glad to hear Tony Blair coming out in favor of the Russian invasion of Afghanistan. It's good to hear him say that. If you look back at the highly credible reports of the last years of the Russian invasion, uh, there were schools, there was development, that women were liberated in Kabul, they could wear any clothes they wanted, they could go to the university. They had problems. The problems were uh, radical Islamist jihadis supported by Tony Blair, and not Tony Blair in those days, Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, uh, who were throwing acid in the faces of women who were wearing the wrong clothes and who were uh, the Russians actually left in place a relatively popular government, the Najibullah government, which held out for a couple of years, won military victories. Finally, the US-British-backed radical Islamic fanatics uh, took over, wrecked the place, destroyed it. Atrocities were so severe that most of the population welcomed the Taliban when they came in. So it's very good to hear Tony Blair praising the Russian invasion for its achievements. Of course, impeded by US-British uh, atrocities, but no, so they couldn't last. Uh, it's approximately the same. Of course, the US put a lot, a huge, you know, did a lot more than Russia did, but it was all nothing. They'd build a school somewhere Two days later, the school would be destroyed because nobody locally supported it. Uh, the, under the Russian occupation, uh, literacy greatly increased, especially among women. Uh, there's a very, it became uh, quite substantially, and there was development. Actually, one of the leading specialists on Afghanistan, who Tony Blair surely knows, Sir Roderick Braithwaite, was the British ambassador to Russia in the late 80s, early 90s, and wrote the major book on Soviet army in Afghanistan. Mm. I'm sure Blair has heard of him. Uh, he visited Afghanistan in 2008, wrote an article about it in the Financial Times, the London Financial Times. I assume Tony Blair has heard of that. And uh, in it, he said, his visit to Afghanistan, he was only in the cities, it's the only place he could go, Kabul. He said he talked to a whole wide range of people, former Mujahideen leaders, uh, local human rights activists, people working for the coalition who had every reason to uh, support it. He said the general mood was total contempt for the government that the US and Britain had imposed, the Karzai government. They compared it to puppets that the British had imposed in the 19th century. So they found the most most favorable attitude was towards Najibullah. They said his DVDs were being sold in the streets. People talked about how under the Russians there was development, uh, freedom, so on. Uh, he adds that a lot of this may be myth. They may be just reacting to the current situation. But he says it just tells you something about what the US and Britain are accomplishing. Well, so uh, uh, what 
Lear said is not factually false, but uh, uh, there are a few things that he ought to know if he's literate. If he doesn't, it's another one of the black marks against him, of which there are many. And if, if we can pivot to Iraq, um, do, do you believe the, the official reason given for the, the US invasion of Iraq? That is to say, to get rid of weapons of mass destruction and to remove Saddam Hussein. Was that the chief reason for the invasion of Iraq? Well, that's what Tony Blair believed. As he put it, the single question, single question is whether Saddam will give up his programs of weapon of mass destruction. Well, what happened when the single question was answered the wrong way? Instantly, in, literally instantly, the reason for the invasion changed to democracy promotion. We invaded Iraq because of our love of democracy. Uh, the British and American intellectual classes overwhelmingly turned on a dime, instantly praising Bush for his democracy promotion initiatives. Of course, not everyone believed this. So for example, there was a poll among Iraqis and it was believed by 1% of the population. What do they know? Uh, wow. 4% of the population thought that the US invaded to help Iraqis. Four. Uh, wow. Overwhelming majority said they want to control their oil. Now, suppose that Iraq's main uh, export was lettuce and uh, the main oil producing region in the world was in the South Pacific. Would the United States have invaded Iraq? <laughs> but, uh, sorry, Professor, just on this poll, can you, can you give us some more details um, in terms of uh, what, what, what was the sample size of this poll? Or can it be deemed as trustworthy, this poll? In Iraq? No, just like, just like the sample size, do you believe this is a trustworthy poll? It was an international poll, probably Gallup or someone else. I, okay. So maybe it was off by 3%. Okay. Maybe 3% of Iraqis believed what American and British intellectuals were pouring out constantly. Doesn't change anything. Okay. Uh, first, and uh, polls in countries like Iraq and Afghanistan are, first of all, very, you have to take them with a grain of salt. Uh, if you're a poor villager somewhere and somebody comes in from the occupying power and asks you, what do you think about so-and-so? You're gonna tell him what you think he wants. Okay, uh, not hard to figure out. Anybody who's interviewed refugees knows this. I have, I've interviewed Laotian refugees. They, they figured I'm probably an American soldier. So tell me what they think an American soldier would like to hear. Uh, anyone who's, you know, if you've had any experience, it's obvious, but even without experience, it's pretty clear what you're going to hear. So the polls always have to be taken with a grain of salt, but these numbers are pretty telling, even if they're a little bit off. 
So mm. Blair had some support, 1% of Iraqis. And uh, so do you believe it was oil? The oil was the main reason for the invasion of Iraq? As I said, suppose their main export was fruits and uh, the center of world oil production was in the South Pacific. Okay, that's the main reason. Actually, it was, form it was made formal at the end. Uh, it was pretense all along. No, of course, we wouldn't be that press. But at mm. the end, in 2007, when Bush was, the U.S. was basically being forced out, the Iraqi government, the Maliki government didn't want him anymore. Uh, the United States did produce a, it's called SOFA, Status of Forces Agreement. It, uh, an agreement that the Iraqi government would have to accept that, uh, on, on the basis of which the U.S. would carry out a partial pullout. And the terms of the agreement were that U.S. corporations would have privileged access to Iraqi resources, which are not tomatoes and asparagus, they're oil. And furthermore, that the U.S. would be able to establish permanent military bases in Iraq. Those are the terms. I don't think the U.S. press even reported it. But it's official. On his Jan, the next that was November, the next January, in his budget proposal, there's what are called signing statements by the president, in which he says, "This is what I'm going to honor and respect. This is what I'm going to ignore." They don't put it quite that crassly, but mm. that's the that's the content. And the thing that Bush emphasized is the SOFA agreement. No matter what. Congress decides we're going to stick to that because that's what matters. Well, Iraq didn't accept it. Okay. But that was the official reason, finally acknowledged, silenced, of course. It's not the right story. The right story is we made a mistake, you know, blunder. So President Obama, for example, is greatly honored because he called the war in Iraq a strategic blunder. Uh, maybe your memory's better than mine, but I don't remember Nazi generals being honored because they thought Hitler committed a strategic blunder in launching a new two-front war. Take out first. Maybe I forgot. Uh, but uh, the United States doesn't commit crimes, just as Britain doesn't. Uh, they may make errors, uh, mistakes, uh, they can't commit crimes by, by definition. Now, Britain has a lot of experience with this. They've been carrying on this act for half a millennium, practically. Uh, take a look at Britain. Put, I mean, British wealth. What does British wealth come from? Starts with piracy during the Elizabethan age. Much of British wealth was uh, brought there by heroes like Sir Francis Drake, who were simply pirates. Uh, then it turned to slavery, uh, sugar, tobacco, cotton, the most hideous system of slavery in human history. Then it turned to the major narco-trafficking operation in the world's history, to opium and, and conquer much of India to get near monopoly of the opium trade so they could force it into China by gunboats. Uh, 
Tunney, a lot of British wealth, the rich families, American families come from that. Now that's, that's uh, Britain's wealth. I won't talk about the atrocities, the Victorian famines in India, for example, tens of millions of people killed. India deindustrialized, uh, one atrocity after another. Do you read about it in school? No. Oh, well, we did. In South Africa. Now, now it's barely beginning after a couple hundred years. If you look back at the time, not at all. Even the most honorable people, people like, say, John Stuart Mill, really outstanding person, one of the great Western intellectuals. Take a look at what he wrote about intervention. He wrote an essay on intervention in 1857, I think it was, which everyone should read. He said, uh, note the date, 1857. That was the time of some of the worst British atrocities and the horrendous atrocities in putting down what was called the Indian Mutiny. Mill, of course, knew all about this. He was an officer of the East India Company. He was, it was all over Parliament and knew all about it, of course. Uh, so what did Mill say? He said, well, he said, Britain is an unusual power. It's an angelic power. It's so angelic that others don't understand us. And they heap obloquy upon us for our efforts to bring peace and justice and all wonderful things to the world. So they criticize us for our intervention in India, which is just guided by the highest moral ideals. And of course, we don't think intervention is a good idea, but we are so noble and angelic that we have to extend our uh, intervention in India to bring uh, enlightenment to the barbarians. And meanwhile, extend their monopoly of the opium traffic so that we can destroy China by forcing it in and enriching ourselves. I added that. He didn't say that part. That's John Street Mill, okay? It goes down. It descends below that as you proceed. Not all. There are people who are really honorable, condemn the atrocities and so on. Mm. But that's the main thrust. And if you go to school in England, get a, go to Oxford, that's your picture you get. Uh, well, there's something called American exceptionalism. You're supposed to believe in it if you're an American. Uh, I mean, of course, it's historically total nonsense, but it's also not exceptional. Every other great power was the same. Uh, the French, when uh, they were uh, carrying out their civilizing mission uh, at the same time that the top French general was calling for extermination of the people of Algeria. That's the civilizing mission. I mean, if we had records from Attila the Hun, we'd probably be saying the same thing. You know? so mm. There's no exception, nothing exceptional. It's normal. And the educated classes almost always uh, fulfill their duty. Sometimes in the most amazing ways. Like take the First World War, like 1914. Every country involved in the war, Britain, France, Germany, 
minor countries, mm. the intellectuals rallied enthusiastically in favor of their side. The famous manifesto of 94, I think, leading German intellectuals are saying, we're the country of Beethoven, uh, Goethe, you know, peak of civilization. You have to understand that we're, of course, right. Uh, same in Britain, when the United States got into war, the same thing. Liberal intellectuals, John Dewey's circle, the Republic, uh, lauding the war as the first war in history, which was not sponsored by the military or the industrialists, but by the intelligent men of the community who considered it carefully and recognized that it was right and just for us to join the war because we're so magnificent. Now, there was a scattering of people who disagreed. They all ended up, most of them ended up in jail, like Russell in England, uh, Liebknecht in Luxembourg in Germany, Eugene Debs in the United States. And that's the intellectual classes. So it's not a surprise that when the single question changed from weapons of mass destruction to bringing democracy to the Iraqis, everyone jumped on board quickly. Not everyone, of course, almost mm. everyone. I think a relevant quote here might be from Napoleon who said that history is written by the winners. If, I might be paraphrasing that, but I, I believe Napoleon said that. But I, I would be interested to hear your opinion on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, because we see a lot of um, um, outlets in, in the US, the conservative outlets, right-wing outlets, that say that the main reason why that conflict is still ongoing is because of Palestinians' unwillingness to accept a two-state solution, right? To divide Israel and Palestine and uh, Palestine and Israel. Is, is that any? Is, is that a legitimate criticism? It's very simple to check. We have a pretty open society. You can look at things like uh, the United Nations records. You find, for example, that in January 1976, not the first one, January 1976, the Security Council debated a resolution calling for a two-state settlement on the internationally recognized borders with guarantees for the right of each state, Israel, Palestine, to live, to exist in peace and security within secure and recognized borders. Supported by the Arab concentration state, confrontation states, Egypt, Syria, Jordan, PLO gave it tacit support, didn't object. They, uh, it was vetoed by the United States. Uh, the PLO condemned the tyranny of the veto. Uh, the uh, Israel was so strenuously opposed, he refused even to attend the session. Prime Minister Rabin said, we're never gonna negotiate anything with Palestinians, certainly not a Palestinian state. It's the prime minister. This is the labor government, Golda labor movement, very hawkish. At the time they were planning programs of settlement in the Sinai, new city, old Jewish city, uh, Yamit and the Mediterranean, 
kibbutzim, other settlements, all the way through driving out the Bedouins. They didn't want to be blocked in that. Uh, Chaim Herzog, another Dove, later president, uh, he practically had a tantrum. He said the resolution was uh, initiated by the PLO in order to destroy Israel. <laughs> Fantasy, but it gives you an idea of the way Israel was looking at it. Mm. Well, I won't run through the whole record, but that's it. So, for example, take another case in 1988. The Palestinian National Council actually essentially formally recognized Israel. There were flaws in the way they did it, but certainly an opening. How did Israel react? There was a coalition government. Shimon Peres, the great dove, and Yitzhak Shamir, they reacted. They didn't respond to the Palestinian declaration. That would be beneath contempt. But they issued a declaration saying there will never be another Palestinian state uh, in uh, the former Palestine, meaning Jordan already is a Palestinian state by the dictates of the Israeli government, and there can't be another one. And mm. then they added that the future of the occupied territories will be settled in accord with the guidelines of the Israeli government. Uh, that was pretty much endorsed by the U.S. in the what was called the Baker Plan a couple of days later. His last press conference, Shimon Peres, 1996, he emphasized there will never be a Palestinian state. Okay, takes us to 1996. Could carry it forward if you like, but that's been the history all the way through. Uh, Israel has a very clear program, very obvious, right on the ground. You can see it in front of your eyes. It's to construct a greater Israel, which will include a vastly expanded area called Jerusalem, about five times the size of what it ever was, taking in destroying Palestinian villages. To the east of Jerusalem, a new, new settlement city by now, built mostly under the Clinton administration, Maladumim, pretty much bisects the West Bank if you take the roads leading to it. To the north, another city deep in the West Bank, Ariel, also connected to Israel with major infrastructure projects, Kadumim. Uh, in fact, uh, the Jordan Valley, it's about a third of the agricultural land. Uh, Palestinians are simply being kicked out. Happens almost every day. Last week, for example, uh, Israeli forces went in and smashed up and destroyed the uh, solar energy installation that had been given to this poor village by Italy, an Italian humanitarian group. Every day something happens like that. And the goal is very explicit. Take over everything that's of value in the West Bank and, ex and exclude the Palestinian population centers. So Israel doesn't want Nablus. Mm. They don't want Palestinians in the greater Israel that's being developed. There are, of course, other Palestinians scattered around. They're now in, I think it's about 165 enclaves surrounded by 
Israeli troops, checkpoints. Maybe every now and then they'll let them get into their olive fields or agricultural centers. Meanwhile, uh, Israeli terrorists called hilltop youths from the settlements come in and beat people up, smash up the villages, uh, uh, you know, whatever they feel like. Well, the IDF, the most moral army in the world, as they describe themselves, stands by and watches. I've actually seen this. If you go visit, you can see it. Go to Hebron, for example, a small group of uh, Israeli settlers uh, supported by a large part of the army. And they run wild. They do whatever they want. They beat up a Palestinian in the streets, uh, smash, overturn a vegetable cart, smash up a store, throw garbage in the street. Now, IDF is there to make sure that no one harms the settlers. Okay. That's greater Israel. Uh, Palestinians, by no means blameless. You can make plenty of charges against them. But the main story is exactly that. Total Israeli rejectionism backed by the United States, uh, tacitly by Britain. Europe is too cowardly to take a stand against the United States. So when Israel, say, invades Gaza, smashes everything up, destroys it, kills lots of people, uh, Europe will come in and fund the recovery until the next time that Israel smashes it up with American arms and American support. In fact, some of the attacks on Gaza, including this last one, are so extreme that Israel had to turn to the United States to replenish their weapons, which the United States can easily do because it stores weapons in Israel. Mm. Israel is a client state used by the U.S. as a military base, stores extra weapons there in case forces ever need them. So they could transfer them over to Israel if they'd, uh, if they'd uh, used up their weaponry, advanced weaponry in an attack on if totally defenseless people in Gaza. Well, that's the story. Well, that's fascinating. I mean, I've, I've never heard of this. But I mean, Professor, I don't want to use up any more of your valuable time. So I'm going to ask you one last question that will be very interesting to hear your opinion. And that is, um, it, it seems like if, if we can pivot to the Cold War, that um, the US made a determination that the Nazis were bad but the Soviet Union were even worse, the, the, the communists. And they decided during the, the, the Cold War to, to support uh, Nazi and fascist governments throughout the world against communism. Like I believe, for example, there was a fascist government in Greece, there was a fascist government in El Salvador, and they supported these governments against communism. Do you believe that was a pragmatic and a practical approach? Or do you think that was um in vain that was that was a stupid approach it starts from the beginning it starts in 1943 when british and american forces landed in italy by then the italian resistance which was quite powerful was holding down half a dozen nazi divisions and had was beginning to drive the nazis out of italy well, the US and British had a serious problem. 
they had to destroy the anti-fascist resistance and reinstate Italian fascism. So they put in power Marshal Badoglio, Field Marshal Badoglio, the hero of the Italian invasion of Ethiopia. They brought back the fascist king. They restored uh, uh, pro-fascist business leaders. Now, they had a real problem in the North. Uh, this was the British Labour government by then. They were appalled by the fact that workers had taken over factories, driven out bosses, were establishing a kind of cooperative state based on working people. The British were particularly appalled by this British Labour government. U.S. and Britain smashed it all up, restored the traditional order. That was Italy. Meanwhile, they were doing the same thing in Greece. Uh, when there was an uprising in Greece, uh, Churchill said, we have to treat Athens like a conquered city, smash up the anti-Nazi partisans, drive them out. Britain tried. Britain was too weak at the time to do it, so they called in the big guy from across the Atlantic. U.S. took it over. Major war. Maybe 150,000 or so Greeks killed. Essentially restored the traditional pro-fascist order. Uh, what happened in Germany? Same thing. Uh, the United States was deeply concerned with leftist elements in Germany, and they were afraid that they were being supported by East Germany under Russian rule. So George Kennan, great statement, statesman, urged that the United States wall off Western Germany from the Eastern zone, interesting phrase, in order to prevent the spread of labor right and leftist ideas to Germany have to understand that after the war, depression and the war, there was a major wave of sort of radical democracy over much of the world. We'd been through this horrible situation. We don't want to go back to what there was. Mm. In the West, it's called communism, whatever that's supposed to mean. Actually, the Russians were just as opposed to it as the Americans. They didn't want radical democracy, certainly didn't want socialism or communism. In fact, goes far back, the Spanish Civil War, the, there was a popular revolution, leftist revolution. The communists were in the lead in destroying it, 1937. Communists were the force, were the uh, party of the police force, the merchant class and so on. Actually, Orwell has a pretty good description of this. He was there at the time. Uh, communists so-called communists, the last thing in the world they wanted was anything remotely like communism or socialism. So they carried out similar policies in their own domains. But the US and Britain did it in most of the world. The same in, same in Japan. Uh, under US occupation, the Jap there was a couple of years of Japanese democracy. Labor unions were formed, uh, a labor movement, cooperative movement started. There was worker takeovers of industry. Uh, when the liberals in Washington heard this, they were utterly appalled. They called it all off, carried out what was called the reverse course, basically reinstated European fascism, Japanese fascism, crushed 
the unions place the place under a business run dictatorship, mostly fascist. And take a look at Western Germany, who was in the government, former Nazis, all the way up to the top, uh, huge number of them. Including Adenauer. I'm not sure what, I, I think he was sympathetic to the Nazis. I don't know how much he participated, but major Nazi figures were right there. I think it was maybe something like 40% of the German government by the 50s and so on. Actually, in East Germany, they suppressed them. It's due to their own autocracy. They didn't want Nazis. They wanted their own uh, counterparts. But in Western Germany, it was basically restoring the fascist order. In fact, that was done. You know, this is cutting corners. It's more complex than this. But that was the main part. You know, there was a formal democracy, of course. There are many other things you could look at about the Cold War. So, for example, uh, in 1952, uh, Stalin made an astonishing offer. He offered to allow Germany to be unified. Remember, wow. Germany alone had practically wiped out Russia mm. just a couple of years before, second time in the century. Said Germany could be unified. Some talk about maybe elections, which he would certainly lose, on one condition that Germany not join a hostile military alliance, NATO. Okay. Pretty reasonable condition when you look just at or forget plain security. Just think what had happened when Germany alone attacked Russia. So condition, don't join a military alliance. Uh, came at a bad time for the United States. The US was just pushing through a huge increase in the military budget. So it was silenced. Almost no talk about it. It was one scholar, very respected scholar, James Warburg. Uh, he brought it up. He said, look, we should look into this, see if it's serious. Uh, wrote a book about it called Germany, Key to Peace. He was, he was a highly respected figure from a big banking family, recognized scholar. He was either ignored or ridiculed. Uh, anyone who bothered to mention it was just dismissed as a lunatic, me in particular. Uh, by, by left journals, incidentally, like dissent. Uh, well, the Russian archives finally came out. Now, leading American Cold War scholars, people like Michael Leffler, one of the most respected scholars, say, look, it looks like there was something to it. Turns out from the archives that even Beria, Lavrenti Beria, the head of the secret police, the most, the outrageous, extreme fanatic was talk, was offering to have some kind of settlement in which Germany would be unified. West didn't want that. Well, there's debate, scholarly debate now about whether Stalin was serious or not. There was a very easy way to find out, right? Take him up on the offer. Out of the question. We have to have a huge military budget we have to expand the Cold War. We have to have global domination. In fact, one of the very interesting facts about 
U.S. Cold War policy is the attitude towards American security. Did anybody care about American security? Well, it's a simple way to tell. Go back to 1950. U.S. security was overwhelming, controlled the Western Hemisphere, controlled both oceans, opposite sides of both oceans. I mean, there'd never been such security for any country in history, aside from the fact that it was far and away the richest and most powerful country in the world. Well, it was one potential threat, potential. ICBMs with nuclear missiles, they didn't exist. Mm. But sooner or later, they were surely going to exist. Well, how did the United States react to the one threat to its security? There's a very good scholarly study of this by McGeorge Bundy, National Security Advisor for Kennedy and Johnson. He was given access, he, he wrote a book on strategic planning, so he was given access to all the high-level documents. And you get to about the middle of the book, a couple hundred pages in, he has a paragraph noticing that, as he says, he was unable to find any, even a draft statement, let alone anything official, raising the question whether the U.S. should try to enter into a treaty with Russia to ban ICBMs, which they probably would have accepted because they were way behind and far more vulnerable. Mm. Couldn't even find a draft paper suggesting it. Couldn't cross anybody's mind that we should pay attention to American security. Scholarship ignores this totally. I mean, I've written about it, but try to take a look at scholarship. Mm. Uh, this goes time after time. If you read the internal documents, fortunately, the United States is an unusually free country. We have a pretty rich record of internal, internal documents, much better than England uh, or other countries. And they're interesting to read. They read like the ravings of utter lunatics. I mean, scholarship is very kind and plays down the rhetoric. But take a look sometime at the most important of them, 1950, NSC 68, secret at the time, released about 30 years later. It's understood to be the major Cold War document. It's the document 1950, China was so-called lost, uh, got to do something. Uh, it called for major military mobilization, big military budget. It was, it was written by liberals. Dean Acheson, Paul Nitze, says, we have no choice, said, the essential nature of the slave state, Russia, is to conquer the entire world. They have nothing else in their mind, you know. It's not a matter of decision, it's their essence, their nature. And it goes on like this, like literal raving lunatics. I mean, there were some people who were sort of sane, like George Kennan, they were simply kicked out along with every person in the government who knew anything at all about China, all kicked out. And it was the, uh, Dean Acheson conceded in his memoirs later that it was necessary to be, as he put it, 
clearer than truth in order to uh, affect the mass mind of government. So in other words, we had to lie through our teeth and act like raving maniacs in order to drive through the Cold War policies we wanted, which were aimed at expanding US power. If you actually look at the Cold War, it wasn't really between the US and Russia. It was between the two superpowers and their own domains. Mm. The actual actions of the Cold War were Russian repression in Eastern Europe, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, and so on, and US violence and repression all over the world. Because of course the US runs practically the whole world. So uh, overthrew the government of Iran in 1953 when the British weren't powerful enough to do it themselves. Mm. Uh, overthrew the government of Guatemala in 1954, uh, try to break up Indonesia, uh, pull off the outer islands of the resources. Eisenhower in 1958 didn't quite make it. Kennedy came along. Kennedy, one of Kennedy's most consequential acts was to change the mission of the Latin American military, which the US of course controls, change it from hemispheric defense, which was an anachronism that was a holdover from the Second World War, change it to internal security. In the Latin American context, internal security means war by the security forces against the population, which is exactly what happened. There's a description of it by Kennedy's counterinsurgency, head of counterinsurgency under the Kennedy and Johnson administrations, Charles Maitling. He said that Kennedy's decision, um, this is from memory, so maybe not exact, but close paraphrase. Mm. Kennedy's decision changed the American position from tolerance of the rapacity and brutality of the Latin American military to direct participation in crimes which are reminiscent of uh, Hitler's death squads. Okay, that's the director of counterinsurgency. And it's exactly what happened. Plague of repression spread through the hemisphere, beginning with a military dictatorship in Brazil. It's timely to mention that because it may be happening again very soon. Take a look at the streets of Brazil right now. Uh, first Brazil, then the other countries of South America, Argentina, uh, Chile, Uruguay one after another, a vicious, brutal military dictatorship, strongly supported by the United States, Britain, uh, international financial institutions. The biggest enthusiasts were the people who called themselves libertarians. Chile, they flocked to Chile to serve the dictatorship. They thought it was the most wonderful thing ever. Uh, it happened on 9-11, incidentally. It's not going to remember this 9-11 was much worse than the second 9-11. Uh, Friedrich Hayek, the most moral of them, said he was really impressed by Pinochet's Chile. Oh, wasn't it Moulton Friedman? Pardon? Wasn't it Moulton Friedman? I, I don't think it was Friedrich Hayek. M Moulton Friedman. Moulton Friedman sent, was down there. He sent his Chicago boys to run the economy. 
they managed to crash it in about five years. Hayek said he couldn't find any, when he visited Chile, couldn't find anyone who didn't think that there was more freedom under Pinochet than there had been under Allende. Apparently he couldn't hear the screams of terror from the torture chambers in Villa Grimaldi and so on. Well, that was Chile. Went on, the worst was Argentina, the favorite of Kissinger and Reagan. Then it got to finally to Central America under Reagan, vicious terrorist wars. US was even condemned by the world court for basically international terrorism, of course, dismissed it. Uh, well, that's, uh, that's history, you know? It's not the way we're taught, but that's history. Well, that's fascinating, Professor. I mean, this has been such a fascinating conversation. And yeah, I, I don't want to use any more of your valuable time. So if there's anything you'd like to plug or add, or if there's one question you'd like to answer that I didn't ask you, I want to give you one last opportunity to do that. I would have just one small word of advice. We're lucky. We love in we live in fairly free societies. People like you and me are privileged. We have a lot of privilege, otherwise we wouldn't be doing this. Okay. Uh, that gives us responsibility. Privilege confers opportunity. Opportunity confers responsibility. The facts are out there. They're not concealed. You can find them. You're not going to read it in your history book, your class text, but you can find it. You're not going to see it in the newspapers, but you can find it. You can bring it to the population. You can hold up a mirror to the population and say, look, this is who we are. Other people understand it. Global South understands it. They understand it very well. Uh, travel there, you see it right away. Just like those Iraqis who... Uh, reacted to democracy promotion, but we can see ourselves too, and that matters. We're the ones who dominate the world, and what we do matters enormously, especially in times of crisis like this one. So let's figure out who we are, honestly, fairly, and act accordingly. Well, thank you, Professor. That's a very interesting and powerful message. And to our viewers, if you've made it this far, please consider liking this video, sharing it as widely as possible and subscribing to our channel. My name is Donald and this has been Worldview. Thank you.